0: Hey lovelies, oh my goodness, what a week it has been. The response to the new blossom dress and foil floral foil, foil floral flutter dress, which is still really hard to say, <laughs> um, that I spoke about on last week's solo episode, the response to those two pieces has completely blown me away. Thank you so much to everyone who is choosing to make impact a part of their wardrobe this Pesach season. It means more to me than words can say. Here's where we are holding as I record this on Sunday evening, March 21st. The Blossom dress is currently sold out in sizes 12 plus. The Foil Floral Flutter dress, thank you very much, I got it out, is sold out in sizes 18 plus. And there are sporadic sizes available in both the Mint and Blush Solid Flutter dresses. So here's what's going on. I get a notification every time someone requests a return label and it shows me exactly what they're sending back. I'm expecting returns of all of these styles in assorted sizes, mostly in the 18 plus range. So, two things. First, I want to extend a personal thank you to all of the lovelies that ordered initially, decided to return, and took advantage of the free return policy and took care of it promptly. These two dresses sold out way quicker than I ever could have imagined, and your consideration for other lovelies who are waiting just shows that we're really all in this together, and I appreciate that so much. Second, if you weren't able to get something you wanted, please sign up for the back in stock notifier. You'll see the option if you go to the product page for address or any item and select your size. If it's sold out, you'll see a button that says, notify me when available. Click that button input your email address and you'll get an email once it's restocked returns are coming in every day and there is still time to get what you're eyeing before pesach which brings me to the last thing i want to discuss and that is shipping times We, and by we, I mean me, my mom, and my little brother, will be shipping right up until the holiday and all through Holomide. The only days we won't be shipping are the days when it's actually a holiday, so that's like next Monday, for example. Every order ships same or next day. The cutoff is 4 p.m. Eastern, so if you order at 3 p.m. on Monday, your order goes out on Monday. If you order at 5 p.m. on Monday, it'll go out on Tuesday. The general time that it takes for an order to get to places in the U.S. are as follows. So listen up when you hear where you're from. For cross-country places like L.A. and Vegas generally takes four days. That makes your pre-Pesach order cut off today, Monday, March 22nd at 1 p.m. your time. That's 4 p.m. on the East Coast. For far places but that are not really cross-country, so I'm thinking Chicago, Miami, those kinds of areas generally takes three days to get to you. That makes your pre-Pesach order cut off tomorrow, Tuesday, March 23rd at 3 p.m. your time. For the greater New York, New New Jersey area, so places like Lakewood, Passaic, Muncie, generally takes around two days to get to you. That makes your pre-Pesach order cut off Wednesday, March 24th at 4 p.m. For the five boroughs of New York City, it generally takes a day. That makes your pre-Pesach order cut off Thursday, March 25th at 4 p.m. For anyone who doesn't know, the five boroughs are Queens, Brooklyn, the Bronx, Staten Island and Manhattan. Yeah, I almost forgot that one. So that's uh, your it generally takes one day to get to you and your order cutoff is going to be on Thursday at 4 p.m. Please bear in mind that I can only control how quickly your order gets to the post office. I have no control over it once it is in the system. I promise that if you order before the cutoff, it will go out that day. Once it is in the system, I have no control over it. The above timelines are approximates based on my experience shipping all over the country. If you can, give yourself an extra day just to be safe. Again, thank you so much for shopping with me this season. It makes projects like this podcast possible. Lastly, I want to let you know that in observance of Passover, there will be no new episode of Be Impactful next week. I'll be back after the holiday with the conversations you've come to know and love from Be Impactful. In the meantime, there is a pretty extensive back catalog to keep you occupied, and if you feel so inclined, I encourage you to go back and listen to a show that you missed. There are some great hidden gems there. Thank you so much for everything, and enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. Ruf Gietzkowitz, and on today's show I talk with a Jewish gender historian about the history of the education of Orthodox Jewish girls. We discuss the history of Beis Yaakov and Saru Schneerer, how some old ideas still translate into our modern education system, and the empowering aspects of the Beis Yaakov movement. Beis Yaakov is something that was always such a part of my life to the point that I never really considered the idea that it could not exist. Sure, I knew all about Sarah Schneer, but I never really thought about her. This conversation with Dr. Leslie Ginsbar-Klein has completely changed my perspective, and I'm glad that there are women like her giving this topic the attention it deserves.
1: I was dramatic. I was, I guess, what, what people call precocious. Um, I'm the youngest child in a family where everyone has big personalities. So pretty early on in my life, I had to learn how to hold my own. Um, I was used to conversations with older people. So I think that was, you know, when when I was a little kid, I'd say probably was already from a young age, kind of spouting opinions and that kind of thing. And um, uh, loved being on stage. Any opportunity I
0: had. Well, I still it's, do. and, <laughs> and, and I, I was just going to say, it sounds like that is still in your wheelhouse, <laughs> which can you, for anyone who does not know, can you tell everyone what it is that you do? Because it is the freaking coolest thing ever.
1: Okay. So first, I mean, professionally, I am the dean of, in the academic dean of an Orthodox women's college. I am also a historian of, um, I'm, I'm a Jewish historian and, spe- and a gender historian, and specifically I research the history of Orthodox girls' education and the Basiakov movement. Um, Basiakov, for those who are not familiar, was the first mass movement for Jewish education of girls.
0: Right. And so I grew up in the Bay system. I went to Bay schools my entire life. Um, and it had never occurred to me that there was a history of I mean, obviously there was. Like everyone knows about Sarah Schneerer and she was the one who started the movement and and all of that. But like in my head, it was always like, okay, Sarah Schneerer in a schoolhouse in Poland got together a bunch of girls and then it grew. And like, okay, now we're now I have to take a homage test. Like it wasn't <laughs> I never really thought about it. Um, right. and what and what that meant and the significance of the movement. Um, can you can you give us a little bit of background? Like, why is the Base movement such a big deal? Why was what Sarish did Like, Can you give us a little bit of an outline around what she did and why that matters so much?
1: Well, okay. Um, I could do that, and then I can add a little bit on why I believe it's really empowering. Um, Why does Sarshaner matter? Okay, Sarshaner was not the first person to start a school for girls. She also was certainly not the first person to have the idea that maybe girls should get a Jewish education. What she did, though, that no one did before her was actually do it on a grand level um you know they part of what precipitated the start of base was that um girls because there were compulsory schooling laws were going to you know the public schools in in poland and europe and they had these strong secular education and they didn't have a, a formal jewish education at all you know and in the past girls always had a Jewish education, but it was informal. It was in the home. You know, they would learn how to keep kosher, learn, learn how to keep a kosher kitchen, the laws that pertain to them. They didn't have an intellectual engagement with Judaism, and you could even argue they, they didn't have a spiritual engagement either. When you think about, Bais Yaakov started within a very Hasidic community where there was this like strong relationship with the Rebbe and these. Uh, it's, you know, Hasidism was a strong spiritual movement, but you know women didn't go to the Rebbe, you know, so so on holidays, the men and, and fathers and the brothers, they're all off the Rebbe, and women are just having their holidays at home by themselves, and they have no intellectual background to even understand the meaning and no means to even like spiritually connect to what's going on, and Saoirse saw that happening. She saw that happening around her, and she saw that girls were being alienated. If you look at like in the Jewish press at the time, there were so many articles about girls assimilating, girls um, converting to Catholicism in Poland, in in the city where Sarschner grew up. So she grew up in Krakow, which, by the way, I don't know if you learned the song in um, in school, like in a small town, like in a little town in Poland. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay, Krakow was like a major metropolis. It's not <laughs> a little town. <laughs>
0: oh because like when I listen I when I think of anything in Poland I think of what the stories that my grandmother would tell and like my grandparents grew up in Pszewosk Poland which was literally just a patch of dirt right, so Poland, right? yeah well, exactly like, oh so Krakow you know, is like a real place
1: yeah it would be like you know in a little town of Chicago you know it's just not a little town
0: <laughs> that's fantastic <laughs> the city. <laughs> but it's okay, a real place okay,
1: okay. <laughs> well, well, well that's that's hardly the only element of the story that's kind of like had been like fairy tailed away from reality right you know? so so okay fine so <laughs> oh goodness where am I in the narrative oh yeah okay so Sar-
0: okay so so she sees that the, the part they're up to is that like Sarshaner Sar- is recognizing that especially in in Hasidic communities and where there's this like very in, in all of our communities, there's this very formalized way to connect to God and to be a part of the community, and it's through this education that the girls are not getting um, because nobody right. really thought to do that. So they're really being shut I'm out. To do it, right? Because no one was like, "Oh, wait, no, they should really. <laughs> right. Maybe they should know what's going on."
1: But um, right. also, there was an element. There were people who believed that it was usser, like it was forbidden by Jewish law. It was at the very least forbidden by by convention, if not actual law. And, that, and that's part of what's, okay, so so let's go back to, to we have our girls assimilating and, and converting. Now, when, when girls are converting to Catholicism, they're not doing this because they have seen some religious light. They are doing this as a form of escape, you know, run away to a convent, escape, you know, or they fell in love with a non-Jewish man, like that happened. You know, I'm thinking of one story, um, um, Rachel Manikin has a great article about, um a story and a great article about conversion in um in Krakow, in the time period when Sarsha, Sarsha's formative years, right? So she probably knew some of these women. And and certainly she did. You know, she writes about, na- you know, her neighbor's daughter, you know, ran away to the city to marry some man, you know, who was Jewish, but, you know, live a secular life. They didn't have a Jewish marriage or anything. Um, so I'm thinking of this one, uh, one woman, you know, runs away to a convent because her parents realized she had a Polish boyfriend. And so they arranged a marriage for, they like quickly tried to arrange a marriage for her right. with. Like you know, a nice Jewish yeshiva bacher, and right. she's like, well, "That ain't yeah. happening." Right. So she runs away to a convent. Um, there was an extremely embarrassing story where um, two granddaughters of of a Hasidish Rebbe of the Sansa Rebbe uh, also ran away and they sued their parents for um, financial support. They wanted their parents to pay for them to go to university. And it became like a front page news story. There were like rallies in support of these girls and it was like massively embarrassing for for um the orthodox community so sarah sneer sees all this going on and and other people are writing like you know hey maybe we made a mistake not educating girls And there's actually a rabbi who there was like a massive rabbinic convention in i believe 1904 and and this rabbi says like says resolution like hey we've ignored our daughter's education let's let's start school for girls and he is just shot down you know, of like, no, you know, yes, girls should definitely be educated in the homes, but to start schools would be, would, you know, be inappropriate. So this kind of dialogue's going on in the press for years about should we have schools? No, we can't have schools.
0: And it was, you know, was the main argument against like, was it because I mean, it's so, it's so crazy thinking about it. Cause like, I always, what do you mean? Of course, girls go to school, but the Was it was the main idea, like the religious argument of like, no, we can't possibly be teaching Torah to women. Or was it more of a like, what if we educate them, then Lord knows, I mean, this is what they're doing when they're not educated. What happens if we release them into the world, knowing what they're talking about? Was it that kind of thing? Or was it just resistance against something new? I think it was more
1: the latter. What you're saying, the first part you're saying is more of a contemporary argument. Well than, I, am, I, I am I am I am contemporary. Yeah. So. No, because that it because that argument has been made today of maybe we taught too much because now look right. girls are shouldn't N- have ideas. Right. Right. Um I don't was that an argument then I think it was more the latter that we can't do that. Um you know the the there's a statement in the Talmud that any man who teaches his daughter Torah it's as if he taught her immorality. Right. So there, there was, and, and that, that, and um, the Rambam Maimonides quotes that statement strongly. So there was a, an idea of maybe, maybe it is forbidden to teach girls Torah. And there are some people who still believe that up until today. And, and you know, for example, um, in like some, like Satmar schools, like those real, real right-wing schools in New York, they, they don't even, when they learn the Chumash Bible today, they don't learn it in the book. They just will learn the stories, but they won't actually study the text. They won't do text studies, like even today.
0: I did so that, going
1: though. back a hundred years ago, that was a real contested point. But so there are so there are many are- stories
0: of women in Torah. You know, like you True. hear about like ra- like Rashi's daughter and uh, Bruria and Betul Like these are women who obviously knew what they were talking about and are brought down in Torah. And like someone, someone educated them someplace. And if Moshe Arbeni was okay with it, why can't we be?
1: Right? So yeah, I don't, I don't really have an answer for that. My daughter asks me questions like that all the time. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, look, you could say to some extent, um, I okay. I'm not an ancient historian. So I'm not, now I'm just like doing my own guesses here. Um, some of these women were self taught. Okay. Um, Some of these women were educated one on one and mind you plenty of women were having tutors, you know, wasn't even thing against education. They had, like, if you were wealthy, you know, you had a tutor that was teaching you all different kinds of foreign languages and all different kinds of secular studies and that actually what was what was could would help you on the marriage market, you know, you wanted a good shit So, so if you knew, you know, German and Polish that could help you get a good shit you know. they actually believed that girl, girls got a stronger secular education because there was a communal belief that um, because men have a prohibition against wasting time that could be spent in Torah study against the Torah and women don't, that better women learn secular studies and be
0: able to contribute to the family economy. Than and men. we still have that so. now totally we still, we still, totally we want still have 100% still have that now the yes. I the clearest example of this to me was science fair whenever science fair came around it was in sixth and seventh grade I have two older sisters and one younger brother this was like my mother is still traumatized by science fair hell where it was like get out all of the glitter and all of the everything we're making a show board we're presenting we are making some new scientific discovery about space that no sixth grader has ever made before and we're we're going forth and we're doing it and it's like this whole thing and then my brother has science fair and he has it like his school did it three or four years in a row. And every single year, he turned in the same exact project on magnets and I made the show board for him in Cut fourth dirt. grade. Exactly. And he turned it in on and, and every time also, my mother, when it, when it came to my younger brother's time for science fair, it was always like, you gotta you gotta practice, you gotta do it, you gotta make the showboard, you gotta do the thing. And he's like, no, it's fine or whatever. So the first time this happened, my mom was like, great, okay, he'll fail. He'll fail, he'll learn his lesson and then next year he'll do better. And then she shows up at the science fair and the thing that he chop chopped together in three seconds is by far and away <laughs> the best one there. And we will never live down right. one, one year. He had to do a project on Japan. And he needed to, and you need he, every every kid got a country, and then you need to dress up like someone from that country. So he got Japan. And the morning of, the night before, he goes, "I need to dress up like Japan." The Japan flag is white with a red circle. It's like I will wear a white shirt. He hands me a piece of red construction paper. Can you cut out a circle for me, and then show me how to like make tape, like loop it on itself so that it's double sided? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. He should If this has been a girls' school, that Japan costume would have been full on racial appropriation. With the chopsticks in her hair 100%. and the high bun, with the with the with the commo- robe yes. and the embroidery uh-huh. and the komodo, one yes. hundred percent. He shows up at that fair in a white shirt with a red circle scotch taped to his stomach. Gets the top prize, and he is the best one there by a million years. <laughs> we still do this. Our girls' secular yeah. education is so much, so much better, better and is so much more high pressured than yes. than yes. than the boys ever have. Right, hundred percent. Yeah, it's so
1: nuts. Th- totally. Totally. I mean, you know what, but, but on the flip, I, I'm happy that girls have what they have. Right. You know, it's so funny because so many people assume about the Orthodox community, oh, women are, you know, like locked up or whatever craziness. And it's, and when I tell people, no, actually Orthodox women are way better educated, secularly educated than men. They're like, oh, really? What? It's like shocking, but yes. And it's been that way for a long time.
0: Yeah, it's it's so true. So in this so in this time, we're back in like 1900s, right. so, okay, so we're Poland. Back. Right. So we're so and when you're asking about those women, okay, so also remember, it wasn't
1: about necessarily an individual woman that the objection was. It was about setting up schools. Can the community set up schools?
0: It was like, like that are was we as a group really... going to sanction this widespread education of girls in Torah? That was more the question. Right. Okay. That,
1: that 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 parents should be educating their daughters was not in question. Of course, parents should be educating their daughters.
0: But should the community
1: set up schools? Should girls' schooling be a communal responsibility? That that's where the that was the point of contention. Got it. So, what was the tipping point? So for so there's a tipping point for Sarchenaire. There's a tipping point for the community. They're both really World War One. Um, world War I did a lot of damage to, I mean, the world, <laughs> but it did a lot of damage to the, the Orthodox community because it kind of broke down, it broke down parental control, it broke down like communal connection, people were displaced, you know, a lot of people were displaced, people were going all over the place and, and, and without having, a lot of what like kind of you know, keeps people in line in life is like, being in a close-knit community, being in a family environment, and suddenly you're all off on your own, it really did a lot to break down kind of the, the structure of the community and and led to a lot of assimilation. Now, this is happening for men and for women. Um, for women, you know, it's in other places as in Europe and in the world, it was different, but for Eastern Europe, women tended to assimilate faster than men because they were more exposed to the secular world. But it, it was becoming a. It was becoming an issue. It was an issue across the community for men and for women, and um, and there was kind of this recognition of we need to improve education across the board. And one of so now I'm talking about the community tipping point. So there was an organization called Aguda, Agudas Israel, Agudas Israel. You might have heard. So around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so Agudas Israel was started by followers of Rav Shamsen Hirsch in Germany and it was considered to be like a really like progressive organization
0: really so yes that's really funny yeah I just I imagine the Agutta as progressive and that just makes me laugh but please continue
1: they were very modern they were very progressive and they were coming in and they were like wanted to bring in kind of a Hirschian philosophy into Eastern Europe and kind of improve education globally and they had like the like audacity to suggest that maybe we should have like day schools that teach um Jewish education and secular education like for boys so they wouldn't have to deal with compulsory education or you know like that was a whole issue also I mean boys were also supposed to be going to school so some of them didn't but some did and then went to yeshiva afterwards and then it was like well okay what if we just start a school that that fulfills government requirements. Okay, that I mean, you've no
0: idea how controversial a suggestion that was. That it's mind blowing to me that that is a mind blowing thing. Like I under, based right. on the context that you've just given, <laughs> I understand how revolutionary that is that like you're introducing schooling to the shtetl, but Krakow is a real place. I will continue to say <laughs> that. Um, But also like industrial revolution
1: happened. I mean, where there's still people living in schedules. Yeah, but the closer you get to World War Two, the less people are living in rural
0: areas. Right. And then, and then you're right To, to say that, like, you know what, maybe we should have this one place where you just go in the morning, they give you breakfast, lunch and supper, and you get everything that you need. It is kind of revolutionary what is education like in the wider world at this point like we're, we've been talking specifically about the orthodox community was the idea of like kids go to school and are there for most of the day like was that yeah, still there's prevalent compulsory, in the oh world? i don't
1: i don't know what time school ended um there was compulsory schooling so Got everyone it. was supposed to be going to school i mean what time did school end i don't think it went till five i think i know i actually don't because they would go to because the vast majority of base Yaakov schools in europe were afternoon schools you Got went it. to public school in the morning and then you went to beis only the big cities could really support a full day school like a, a day school what we think of today as a day school half day secular half day jewish that only existed in the big in the big cities when when you see stats that there was you know somewhere like like um i don't know like 300 beis schools like those were the vast majority were afternoon schools so Got you went it. to public school and then you went to Yaakov, and even, and, and, um, Aguda would work it out. You know, Yaakov movement was very tie, became very tied to Aguda, um, you know, yeah. that, that, um, the students who went to Yaakov would be like excused from the religious instruction in the public schools. Got and it. And they
0: would go to, to that so that they could have that. Okay. So then right. so so now, that, that's, that's
1: the communal epiphany. So right. when Siakov, so when Aguda says, Hey, um, we want to get into the business. So Aguda came in and was like, okay, You know, the Eastern European, like the Polish education system's a mess. You know, these like, you read conditions of haters, (laughs) Mm -hmm. like really bad, you know, like we're going to get in, we're going to reform, we're going to professionalize things. We're going to make like a really great, strong education system. So they wanted to, they were in it for boys and they wanted to get in it for girls. When they want to get in it for girls, you know, someone brings to their attention, hey, there's a woman who's already doing this and she's doing it well. Maybe you want to partner with her. Got it. Now let's talk about Sarah Schneer's Epiphany. So Sarah Schneer's family left Krakow during World War I, like many others, escaping, you know, bombings and things, you know, war. And they end up in Vienna. And she ends up um, Sir, she was very pious. You know, she was very pious. She was very religious. She was an like avid goer, and she's gonna look for she's gonna look for the synagogue where she can go to pray on, on Shabbos. So she finds a, a show of a rabbi um, uh, whose name is Rabbi Flesch. And he was a student of Rabbi Hirsch, of Samson Rafael Hirsch. And Serge Nehr had never been exposed to his philosophy. And it like, it just, you know, blew her mind. Like the idea of like, we can, like a traditional response to modernity, you know, that, that idea of like, we we can, we can, you know, Hirsch responded to modernity and like, here's how we can live from lives in the modern world. And that was, that was amazing to her. So she's listening what to been the, the
0: alternative until that point.
1: Let's pretend there is no modernity. Oh, I mean, okay. Her, there, any attempts to spread her, uh, leaders in Eastern Europe and Poland felt like, like, Rev Hirsch's approach, that's fine for Germany, but that's not necessary here because you know we haven't been exposed to the same things they have um you know i don't Got know you, you know if i want to be cynical we, i could say their approach was stick your head in the sand um that was kind yeah. of
0: what i was thinking yeah to just to just be like okay, bit. this is, yeah, this is not what's bit. happening this is not what's happening we're going to keep living the way that we've lived for millennia and we're not going to pretend like the world is changing because also right. this time in the world like the early 1900s this is a time of huge like yes. huge change in the way that yes. the world function works yes. yeah exactly just like the industrial yes. revolution if you 100%. think about just in like the technology side of it you could kind of do the same stuff from oh i don't know like 2000 bc to about 1850 and then stuff starts changing really fast and with all of that you, there needs to be there needs to be a change in in the movement and it sounds like if there hadn't been that change in orthodoxy then we there wouldn't really be that many of us left
1: you know i i'm, I'm not gonna speculate alternate realities. Um, but the Orthodox community was in really, was bleeding members. I mean, just bleeding members. And even, you know, I think in Basiaco schools, there's kind of this narrative told where like, and then Sarshanian came in, like saved the day. Yeah, Basiako saved a lot of girls and women, but there was still, even after Basiaco, there was still a lot of assimilation happening. You know, it didn't, it didn't end it. Um, you know, it didn't end it to There's still, it, it's, the community, all, you know, the community was falling apart. You right. know, it was struggling. The community was still struggling. It, there were a lot of challenges. And then obviously we don't know what would have ultimately happened because the Holocaust just effectively ended the East European community right. in, in any meaningful way. Um, so, so Sarah Schinger's at, at this show, and she actually re- recounts an event, this epiphany that she had on Shabbos Hanukkah when this rabbi Flesh is, is um, giving a drasha on Hanukkah, and he starts talking about the heroines of the holidays. And this was like mind-blowing for her. Like a rabbi from the pulpit is talking about women. And more than that, he talked to women. He said to the women in the audience that they should all, all strive to be heroines. And she has this epiphany of like, I'm, I'm going to be a heroine. I'm going to answer this call. And the way to do that is to say, you know, if I can bring kind of this ideology to Eastern Europe, then I am going to, um, then that will be, I, I will do everything I can to save girls and women. So she goes back to Krakow with this grand plan of not starting a school. That was not her original plan. Her, her original plan was to start like a youth movement, because everything was an ism at the time, socialism, communism. So, so we're going to start, you know, like from womanism, and we're going to have like a social movement for, you know, idealistic teenagers to, Be create this like social structure and a social movement for for like promoting being from and and she fails miserably (laughs) she's like a complete it completely fails she can't get it off the ground the teenage women aren't interested you know she gathers them and and they're like are you like are you kidding me you you gathered us together for a meeting for this you know (laughs) for me you know like and and they're out the door and and, you know, I think also the narrative kind of says, like, kind of said, right, she, she decides to start a school and then starts little and then it gets big. No, she failed and she failed and she failed, but she never stopped trying, you know, and glossing over that kind of takes away some of her greatness. So at some point she realizes, okay, I got to start younger and from starting younger. So then let's start with a school. Although mind you, she's also the founder of Beno's. Of the youth group. Oh,
0: yeah.
1: I Because, and ultimately, Beis Yaakov does become a social movement. It's never, right. and it is until today. Beis Yaakov, right, think about like, oh my God, some of these songs, okay? Beis Yaakov, it's my identity, it's who I wanna be. Like, right. be, who, what school do you, other high school do you know that would have a, sco- a song with girls
0: singing? This school is my identity, you know, like right. It becomes that much more it does be, and, and even now, like there are Bayesian schools now. and they're yeah. right. And there are plenty of Orthodox schools that don't, you know, identify as Bayesiakov and whether or not you're sending your kid to a Bayesiakov school or not is a major decision. And it's, you know, and that will dictate a lot of what you know, a lot of the philosophies around the school and whether or not they have a uniform and if um and you know and the kind of things that they'll present to your kid and and all of that. It's it's it is a big it's a big it deal. Is,
1: and it's all in, it's kind of a all-encompassing environment. And, you know, Basiakov today, and we're going like back and forth, you yeah. know, has such strong extracurricular activities right. and much stronger. Like, I mean, just the concept, there are several words that had meaning in Basiakov had nowhere else.
0: Production. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. Like, Production is the play that the high schools put on every year. And they are a production; they are—they're like ten nice, hours long. They're from, not very the good. Moment.
1: You know, I'm going to disagree with you on that. I do. I'm going to. I have to acknowledge that they sacrifice quantity of girls on stage for yes. quality.
0: Oftentimes, but you have to get the whole but, school
1: up there. But, but but come on, you have a bunch of high school girls who are given like really strong leadership roles. You're in charge of costumes. You're in charge of props. You're in charge of drama. You're in charge of dance. And 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 like. Suddenly you are thrust into this massive leadership role that that girls are fighting for. I mean, my God, when when we're waiting to hear who's gonna be
0: the heads of production, it's like everyone like it's a big deal. And you are speaking, you are speaking to a production head, mind you. The, okay so are
1: speaking, so and so it was a was very like,
0: big deal but also what was hysterical to me was big deal. a very big deal and I even went back as an alumni and did um and was like the alumni advisor and I assisted on costumes and behind the scenes stuff and I did also there. I directed a play
1: after I Yeah exactly <laughs> so and I'm what like, was
0: hysterical yeah. to me was that I only did it the one time because when I was in high school that play was The biggest deal. It was Mm -hmm. so important. It meant Mm -hmm. the world. And then, literally, the second you graduate, and then I come back as an alumni, and I'm and I'm assisting on costumes. And I was like, "This is so insignificant in the realm of the world." And like at that point, I was in school or whatever. And I was like, "Wow, I can't believe that this was ever this important to me." But it was so important at the time. It
1: was. But you know what? I've done. So I, I, so I am writing a book on the history of baseball in America, and and. I have these like amazing quotes from women who say that like the leadership skills that they learned from, from production. And you know, what? you don't get that in a co-ed school, right? First of all, I and mean, you don't get those kinds of like, st- like even, okay, like student council, what what does student council do, you know, versus, versus student council in Basiaco, which is like planning events and, and
0: yeah, go and all of that. go yeah.
1: Right. So, so, um, but oftentimes, you know, as we know, a lot of times um, the leadership roles tend to be very like gendered in their selection process. You know, like boys end up in, in a lot of leadership roles. And the fact that girls have every single leadership role in that building really does a lot to foster leadership skills. And that was one of like Sarah Schneer's like explicit goals in, in starting Base Yaakov. The purpose of Base Yaakov was to create women leaders for the next generation. What did you do when you went to BC? You were supposed to become a teacher and you were supposed to now run a school. And she had these like 15, 16 year old graduates teaching each other how to do their hair to look a little older. And she would take them on a train, stop in some town that doesn't have a school, speak to the town, have, have this girl, she's not even a woman, this girl speak to the town and say, Wouldn't you love her to be your teacher? Yay! And then leave her and go on to the next town. And she's left there to be the one person running a school to go to get admitted to the base yakov seminary and listen to this because this is also radical okay you had to c- commit to teach for two years in a base yakov school not in your hometown wherever base Yaakov placed you wow it's like a forerunner of teach for america but, right but in that time the, the, the girl's gonna leave home and she's gonna live on her own in like a different city and she's going to run a school there and, and this they, was a single know, girl Single, 100%. And they wouldn't let them go in their hometowns because they didn't want them to have familiar responsibilities. It had right. to be your life was base Yaakov. Wow. And people the took school. them up on this. Uh, people were, you know how hard it was to get in to the base yeah. seminary? You had to I'm get sure. in, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, now we're, we're I, I fast forwarded, you know, 20 years, but, but yeah, and it's when it really, explodes and and Sarah Schneer starts that seminary but then when a good comes in you know a good has the money and the infrastructure and the resources to like build buildings and get and start they also started like shopping around for like um statements of support from rabbis of like no this is a good thing to
0: do you know right so and all of that you know and Um, all of that explodes movement when we're talking about you know people going to different hometowns or whatever around what year are we at now
1: So she starts the school. So she comes back. um, When does she get back? Uh, Maybe like 1915. And she starts trying to do stuff and not successful in 1916. She starts the first school in 1917. So she, again, decides to do the school. So, So what makes her different, right? Everyone's talking. Should we do it? Should we do it? Is it right? Is it wrong? Okay, she just goes and starts a school. And her success is what speaks for her. She gets approval and like like support from the community because she's successful. And there's kind of this m- like reverse narrative, which says like, oh, she had approval from like this whole list of, of rabbis before she started the school. No, she didn't. That happened years later. That happened after the movement was successful. No, she just went and did it. She just did the work. And, you know, on some extent, um, I think Naomi Seidman, who wrote a brilliant book about um, about, Sarashner and the History of B. I think she makes this point that, you know, there's this whole like Jewish legal discussion. Is it permitted? Is it forbidden? Okay. She sidestepped it because she's a woman. right you know she's not in the base medrash okay she's not in the study hall arguing rabbinic dictum she's not in the, she's not in that world she's a woman and it's you know that what is the statement a father shouldn't teach his daughter well she's a woman teaching girls like you know what I mean she just totally right. sidestepped it and then you know there'll be all these statements no it really means only oral Torah not written Torah like there, there's you know a good will like put together all of these like
0: They'll deal with the like the the logistical clerical back end to make it okay, but in the meantime, she's just doing her thing. Yeah, she's just doing. She, her she thing. Just didn't and, ask and she's thing.
1: Rab- and she's going to rabbis herself, like like saying like like I need you to support this. And some do, and some don't. There's a story, and I, I guess there isn't there isn't an end. So I guess maybe he did. She just, like shows up at the Babur rabbis. I think it was the Buber rabbis house on Arab Sukkis, and like just hopes she's gonna like not get thrown out like for yanta oh, And she basically shows up there, and it's like no, I I, like, I I need you to to talk about the schools and ends up suspending Yantif there i don't know if in the end he agreed to be supportive because it doesn't say that at the end of the story it just says that she spent Yantif there so my guess is that he
0: didn't i mean they didn't throw her out after the first day so that's helpful no, they didn't throw her out right they let to so. go but
1: but sounds I, a lot like I, sales I hear that afterwards he was supportive right uh, of right. the schools, um, she got a bracha from the Belzer Rebbe. She was a Belzer Hasid. She got a bracha from the Belzer Rebbe, which was nice. But it wasn't really. She, when she has the idea, she says to her brother, um, "You know, I'm going to start. I'm gonna start a school." And her brother's like, "Why do you want to get involved in something so political? You know?" Right. And she's like, "Look, I'm doing it." So he's like, "Okay, let's talk to the the Rebbe." And and um, the way this story is often told is like oh I, like he was taking her cuz he thought the rabbi, rabbi would for sure say no and that would like end things but it, it doesn't seem that's really that, that that that's really what happened and and rochel manikin again she really kind of shows this decisively um he takes her there and he writes like this really open e- like they write a kvitzal my sister wants to lead girls in the jewish way he it, it's kind of like very like open ended and um, you know she believes and i think it's a very compelling argument that he took her there to help her he wanted to get her a little bit of like of like cover you know you get right. a bracha from the rabbi then you know it's worth that, something it's that's worth it's worth a lot in, in right. a Hasidic community so so she got that bracha to you know leading girls and 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 she she takes off and and she does it and she starts these schools and she talks a lot about leadership you know there's a a famous she wrote um an ethical will at the end of her life she died of cancer in 1935 and she was like devoted to Besiakov Yaakov until like her last dying breath and you know it's so interesting because and I said it was like a Hasidic community very much you see that for the girls in Besiakov, Yaakov that she became like the equivalent of their Rebbe like they- they they wanted to, you know, there's a statement of of, of a girl, she's like, Sarishnir state, stayed in my grandmother's house, and I got to prepare her her water for Negalvasar to wash her hands in the morning. Like, that's not the way you talk about like
0: that's not you know, that's, that's not regular talk human rabbi. talk.
1: No, right. It, that's 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 shimush That's right. like where like the the disciples of the Rebbe take care of his physical needs. It was like that same kind of concept and and the graduation. What was the graduation? We sing, we sing the same nigunim for four hours straight. Rebetzin Ka- Kaplan started you know, the the high school in Borough in Park, you know, talks about that. You know, it, it's a Hasidic, and, and like the highlight was dancing with Sarah Schneer, you know, it was very much that feeling. So when she's at her sick bed, like she's surrounded by her students. Um, her husband, she, she got, um, Sarah Schneer was actually divorced. Um, she was married at 38, I'm sorry, 28, she got divorced a few years later, and then she remarried towards the end of her life, like, he's, like, in the next room, it's her Mm -hmm. students who are surrounding her, you know, and she writes this last letter to her students, this ethical will, and it is this, it's, like, it is, like, you have a holy calling, you need to be leaders for the next generation, and that is, kind of, the charge that she, that she gives off, and, and, you know, that's one of the many reasons her story is so inspiring. I mean, the power of the individual, the power of grassroots activism, the power of just doing, of just doing what you know and what you believe is right. And, um, and the power of, of being a leader and inspiring others to be yeah. leaders. I mean, it's and so f- I don't think that that girls' leadership, yeah, I don't think it's talked about a lot. It's only like that, I never, the, you just used the but phrase grassroots activism. Happening.
0: Yeah, and it's like using the phrase grassroots activism. The way that you just told this story, one hundred percent, you're right. It follows any social movement. It follows any you know any grassroots kind of activism. But hearing that associated with the with the Basiakov story, it's it's never how the story is told, and it's never how it's um, presented. You are a historian of this subject. Why do you think it's important for there to be people like you, people studying this as as historians, you are a doctor, like this is what you do. Why is it so important to have those, to have that kind of look at this topic?
1: So, you know, on one level, from just a like academic perspective, when historians, when you write about Jewish history, you read Jewish history books, it's like the normative experience is the male experience. And it's like the women's experience doesn't exist, but you can't understand a time period or a culture or a history, if you're only studying 50% of the population. So, you know, first from an academic perspective, there's something massively lacking in in our knowledge and understanding. And just like, you know, just, I I was doing this because I'm actually speaking at an undergraduate college um, later today to a class about, um, I'm I'm a guest speaker in a a class of people who are not Jewish or not about, uh, not Orthodox or anything, so just a regular, you know, secular college class about um, about Orthodox Judaism and, and uh, women. And I just, for argument's sake, just through Google Images, Haredi Jews, guess what the pictures are of? Yeah, men. Men, <laughs> men, Orthodox Jews, men. Here and there, there's a, a woman like in the picture. Okay, men, 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 men. It's like, there's this kind of perception that, that, um, that Judaism is a men's story and women are either like, you know, in the back of the room are, are sitting with their, with their hands folded in their lap, or they're just like kind of subsumed in that experience. And it obscures the fact that women are living like really rich lives, really rich lives and, and, and incredible lives. And those stories are, are just not there. And kind of, there's this assumption that for lack of a better term that like, orthodox women are just gray. You know, gray have no color. There's no color. You know, and 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 I'm not talking about a wedding in Brooklyn where there's legitimately no color. Um, you know, <laughs> you know <laughs> and thank you for, by the way, for designing clothing with color.
0: You're welcome. It's a welcome change. <laughs> You're welcome.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, like that's not what I'm talking about. Like just that their lives are grim, Like that's not the reality. You know, do you remember the rapping on um, Doria sharam girls? Yes! a couple years ago. Oh, okay. they I were awesome. Them. God, awesome, right? So these two Basiakos girls record a rap about genetic testing for Ashkenazi genetic diseases, and it goes viral, okay? And then the forward writes an article that's like, whoa, this is like so weird and crazy and unexpected. And I wrote a response piece that was published in the foreword of like, mm, no, this is actually not unusual at all. Like this, welcome to Orthodox welcome to Orthodox girls. They're not They're not the exception. This is the rule. Go into an Orthodox high school and, and this is what's happening in the hallways. And this is what, there is like a total like encouragement of creativity, especially in the performing arts, but on, on all levels. And there is very much in, in a lot of schools, I, I think. And certainly this was my experience, like a push for intellectual achievement, even if it's just to get straight A's, but like there is that push. There's none of the like, oh, math is hard. Okay. No, there's like, you know, you want to be in the high classes, you know, there, there's.
0: Right. There, there is, is actually an argument that's made. And I kind of fall on this side of the argument that the base alcohol system is too high pressured and that it's too, and that it's too, it's that it's it, it cause it can be a pressure cooker. You're dealing with yes. a double curriculum. You're in, you know, you're talking about eight, eight hour days, and then you're adding the extracurriculars on top of that. Right. It is a stressful system to be a yes. part of. And if you cannot keep up academically and forget about it, if you have any kind of learning disability, then you will right. fall that behind. Is a,
1: that is a problem. That is a problem. And, and certainly the school, like, you know, there was a time when, when a basic school would never expel a student or never not accept a student because there was a feeling of responsibility for the education of every Jewish kid. And, and I feel like in recent decades, that's been lost, in favor of like, ew, we only have the best girls in our school. And and I, I cannot imagine a more like, not Sarshani or, or Vichna Kaplan ideology than that. Like, right. you know, that, that is just not like the ethos of Bay the way it was and the way it, I believe it should be. You know, I think there, there is a, there, there has to be a community responsibility. That's going back to the beginning. Is there a communal responsibility that every single girl, that no girl is left behind or not? Right. Okay. And it's the same, it's that. the same
0: argument. It's the same, yeah. Um. you know, it's, it's the same conversation that we're having literally a hundred years right. later.
1: Right. Right. The, the,
0: right. This has been, parameters have changed, but it's the same. Right. Exactly. It's the yeah. same kind of, it's the same kind of way of, like you said, is it our responsibility to make sure that every kid has a school or is it our responsibility to make sure that the kids that come out of our school are touted as, you know, fantastic and better than everybody else. Personally, right. I fall I on think- option one.
1: A little bit. The issues that you're pointing out. Uh, you're in New York, right? Yeah. Yeah. So they're more endemic to New York because out out of town, like I went to out of town, Baysaco. My my daughter is currently in out of town, Baysaco. Okay. And 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 they do function to a great extent as community schools.
0: Yeah, it's a totally you know, different, totally different ball game. It's a totally different ball game. Just because there are so many choices here in New York.
1: Right. So right. like
0: I I live in Queens and I went to high school in Far Rockaway because I wanted to, and I sat on the Van wick every day and it was completely fine and. And I had that choice. So there's, is this kind of feeling that because there are so many choices, because there were literally dozens of schools that I could choose from, if I got rejected from one, then I could just go to the other. Um, right. And when you're in an out-of-town community that has usually one, maybe two schools, then you're just going to make sure that everyone gets placed because because right. everyone's going here. Congratulations. You're going right. here.
1: Right. Not- there was no, like, I, I, I had no stress in my high school applications. I had no doubt I was going to be accepted. <laughs>
0: right. Yeah. So it it is kind of a different place. And in a lot of ways, out of town communities are like, they, they function like that Krakow school, you know, where it's like, you want to come, come here because Krakow is a real place now in my head. And I'm going to keep saying that just like out of town places are, I'm trying not to let my New Yorker show too much, (laughs) (laughs) but it creeps out every now and then. Um, this, this way of looking at something that so many Orthodox Jewish women or Orthodox Jewish people just take for granted is fascinating i've had the best time just like reading through your articles and and getting to know more about the movement through you um it, the, i know that you have that you have books out and you have a website if somebody wants to learn more from you where can they go what where where can they drink up more of this fantastic stuff so
1: if you visit my website lesliegkline.com so that has there's an article page which has space links to all the articles that i have written um there are also there are various recordings floating around, um, but you know I'm also happy to come to your community and speak. I do that often. Um, and I have a children's book called Sarah Builds a School, which is a great way of introducing young girls and boys. This is not just a story for, for girls. This is an important story for all Jewish children to know. Um, and, it's, and, and the book is very much written for a general audience. Like it's, it's because again, I think this is an inspirational story for children across the board. You don't have to be a base Yakov girl to enjoy the book and to learn from Schneer's story. And then I have a book in progress on, um, the history of base Yakov in America for adults. And, um, and that will hopefully be coming out in the next year or two, so you can keep an eye out for that. Um, if you wanna follow me on social media, I actually often post que- research questions on my Facebook page, and all different base graduates from all over the world answer them, and it, like I'll
0: post a question an hour they're later, so like fascinating 200 responses. They're, and they're so fascinating. They're, they're so fascinating to read. And because everyone, because you think when you have this huge system, you kind of just assume that everyone has the same experience as you do.
1: Yeah, But not, it's not right.
0: true. It's not true on any level. And it's- and, oh, I'm, and
1: I'm looking for the, you know, I always ask for, the reason why I always ask on those posts, tell me the school you went to and the year you graduated is because I'm looking for the patterns. Right. I'm looking for not the outlying experience. I'm looking for the patterns of like, Okay, if you were out of town in the 90s, this is what was happening. But that already happened in New York 10 years early. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sorry, out of town. Well, we won't hold it against you. We're, we'll try because, to be nice. Are you
1: kidding me? We had 10 more years without uniforms.
0: That's oh, true. It's true. I actually like the uniforms, though. I you love know uniforms.
1: I hated uniforms because I chafed both physically because they were itchy. Right. And, you know, like I need to like creatively express myself through my clothing. So for me- I did the... through excessive accessorizing.
0: Same, exact same, excessive, excessive. excessive. headbands, uh, uh, belts, um, the necklaces, bracelets, giant rings. I had uh, like Mickey Mouse Rafi. yellow shoes.
1: I had gold. I had gold suede Ked high tops with ribbon laces. Mwah. Okay, that is fantastic. Thank you. I that was is...
0: so cool. There, okay, yeah. right. but also to me, what I loved about uniforms was that there was like it wasn't really. I liked the even keel of it. I like, first of all, also the fact that I was traveling meant that I had like zero time in the morning. So the the lack of needing to think and just being like, same skirt, same shirt. Okay, let's go. Um was very, I just liked the convenience of it. And I liked the, I did like the even keelness of it. I liked the fact that like, we all looked bad. Nobody looks good in those things. It was actually when I I just released um a couple weeks ago, I released what I'm calling the most perfect pleated skirt. And the, and I, and I was just curious. I was like, what is like, what do you think about pleated skirts? Cause everyone, I think they're cute, but like everyone hates them. And literally the most common response was I I'm scarred from uniforms. Mm-hmm. I'm scarred from you. I'm scarred from uniforms. I cannot wear pleated skirts. And I was like, no, those are just bad. They're just bad pleated skirts. We can all acknowledge that those were bad. Let's yes. do other things. And mine is way cuter. And it has like a belt and paperback. it's very cute. Um, but either way, that's not the point. The point is, is that like, it, it does like put that you know,
1: as, a, as a parent. Okay. So mm-hmm. I have one daughter in a uniform and I have one daughter who's going to be in uniforms next year. And I'm like counting down the seconds <laughs> because like the, 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 not having to fight with my, with my girls every morning about what they wear. No, but why can't I wear that? Because it doesn't match. Okay, why can't hmm. I wear that? Because it's January. And no, right. you can't wear short sleeves and a tutu to school. Okay, you know, to not have to fight. Today, I want to wear a dress. No, that dress doesn't spin. I want a dress that spins and has pockets. Honey, girls' clothes don't have pockets. Yeah, that's not now. how it works.
0: <laughs> that's not how it works, hon. Welcome you know, to the
1: club. Right? So that, and also the the keeping up with the, the Joneses. I mean, I live in Baltimore. So like, there aren't really Joneses so much. Or the Joneses are wearing what was, was like, in style in Lakewood last year, but, but you know what I mean? Like, I don't need to do deal with like juicy couture and like this and, and all like that, that's not my thing. So I'm very happy that they're all in uniforms and I don't have to like, it's enough stress on me of making sure my daughter's wearing like, like the the correct head hair accessories that are in style. Like I, I don't, I don't, I'm I had these flowers happy. that
0: were literally the size of my face. They were enormous. Yeah. They covered like the entire side of my I... face. I wore them all through high school and seminary and I loved them to pieces. And I think I still have them. And by the way, I still wear them sometimes because I still- Do like you? Them. Good for you. I do. I still wear giant, crazy headbands. Now, it's funny because like to me, like the wig is already a headpiece. So putting something else right. on top of it is like, do I really want to accessorize the wig? Usually the answer is no, but occasionally it'll be, it'll be up there. This has been- Such a fun, we are way over time. This has been such a fun conversation. Um, The last thing that I want to ask you, Leslie, is what I ask everyone who comes on the show. And that is to you, Leslie Klein, what does it mean to make an impact?
1: So um, I think I want to say two things because I actually listened last night to your podcast with Chevy Samet. Chevy was a student of mine and now is a, she was a student of mine who now, you know, when they say you learn from, my students have become my teacher, you know? Yeah. Um, So I really like what she said about how, how um, making an impact is, is making the difference and leaving something better than when you, you know, leaving it better than when it came. I want to take that and I want to add another point to that. And that's the whole um, Reb Zusha concept, the Hasidic rabbi Reb Zusha, who said like, you know, he's not going to be asked in the heavens why he wasn't Moshe Rabbeinu. He's going to be asked why wasn't he Zusha. Like that, Each one of us, and this is something that very much is in Saar ideology as well, and in her statements to her students about leadership, Okay, each one of us has something to contribute, right? where, Where there are no leaders, you have to strive to be a leader. So there is something that each one of us has to contribute. And so making an impact is making that contribution, and oftentimes, you know, in my advocacy work, people get disheartened. Like, I, I didn't make, have any impact. No, you opened your mouth. You had an impact. Whether you see that impact or not, you might, you might see, you might not see that impact for another day, for another year. You might never see that impact, but that doesn't mean it wasn't there. When you, like, when you used your voice, when you use your leadership skills, when you did something to, when you tried to make something better, right, to make it better than when you came in, you had an impact, wow. so, the, so it's each one of us thinking about where we can make our impacts, and going for it, you know, taking the message of Sarsenir, you know, Sarsenir could have thought, okay, look, my god, divorced, poor, uneducated woman, any one of those was a reason to say, well, I can't do it, but she did, but you make your impact and each one of us, it could be big, it could be small, but the impact is there.
0: Wow. Thank you so much for coming on today, Leslie. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Leslie, her links are in the show notes. I highly recommend checking out the article section of her site. There are some great reads there. Special thanks this week to Avital at Goldsmith for connecting me with Dr. If you're listening to this early in the week, it is released. There is still time to get your impact before off Go back all the way to the beginning where I talk about the shipping deadlines. Send me your questions if you have them. Access all of that, including some great fashion, by swiping up on the cover art or going to impactfashionnyc.com. To hear more episodes, be sure to subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help more people hear it, leave a review or a quick rating, they make my day. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses. Original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rivki Edskiewicz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.nyc. As always, here's to making an impact together.